It's Sunday, finally. There's the phrase TGIF, right? Thank goodness, thank God it's Friday. Why? Because it's the end of the week, and then finally, oh, here it comes. And usually people are living for the weekend. They're waiting in the elevator on a Friday. So what are you doing tonight? Where are you going tomorrow? I'm going to church. What about you? Maybe we say that. Maybe we don't. But there's a sense in which people need the weekend, right? We need a break from routine. We need to be able to reflect on the past. What just happened this past week? Why did that person blow up at work? Why did that project go so wrong? Why did our computer die on us the worst possible moment? What, did, what did, was in that burrito? We have all questions about the past and what happened. Sometimes we take the weekend to pause and get ready to recharge for the coming week, right? So Sunday technically is the first day of the week. So we've just closed the books on last week. And today is the day to... Trust God for enough energy to venture back into the week tomorrow. And so we need the weekends. We need days like today to rest. And so we're looking ahead with questions, right? I wonder what's going to happen in the saga of Ukraine. I wonder what the price of gas will be next week. I wonder uh, what my bank account will look like in a variety of scenarios that we're wondering about for the future. I've got these three projects on my plate starting tomorrow. Please give me grace. And so the weekends are such a vital time for us. For Jesus and his disciples, that was the same. They needed breaks, a break from the routine. And this is what we find here in Matthew 16. This is an important part of this series that we've been looking at Jesus in his life. The Gospels tell us the story of Jesus. The epistles explain what it means and why he died and what it accomplished. But the Gospels are just kind of telling us the story. And in this part of the story, this is the beginning of a big major change in his ministry. This is the last of the cool Prezi pictures, so enjoy it while it lasts. But we had Pastor Tim walking us through Jesus' public ministry. And in his public ministry, he is ministering to people in, in large groups. And we've looked at his miracles that he was doing and healing people, providing for their food in miraculous ways. In fact, back at the end of chapter 15 is another miracle like that, where he feeds 4,000 families with a small Lunchables. And even at that setting, he is ministering to so many people in public. He also teaches. We were taught that, we were reminded that a lot of his work was teaching people, sometimes directly, sometimes in parables. But Jesus was always teaching, especially those who had ears to hear. But it was a mixed response, and sometimes he'd focus on uh, the, par- the Pharisees, the religious leaders who pushed back. But now, at this part of his ministry, he's going to begin to shift his focus away from the big public ministry to more of a personal teaching ministry. Now he's going to zero in on his disciples and the miracles that that he will continue to do. Those have a more of a specific purpose and a function. And so what he's going to do after this chapter, he's going to be leaving this region and now heading south. This is kind of a little more of a realistic map. This is the top of the Sea of Galilee. You see uh, the city of Capernaum, Bethsaida, Chorazin. These are the major cities where Jesus performed many of his miracles. Just north of that is Caesarea Philippi. That's the scene for today's story. And in this spot of Caesarea Philippi, um, Jesus is going to have a private conversation with his disciples. 
And he's going to shift the focus away from everybody listening to him to just a few people, just him and his disciples. Like you get away from the week and you just come home and it's just you and the family. Oh, and you vent a little bit and you kind of get over things and you say, hey, you know what you said Tuesday? Like, what did you mean? And we just kind of reflect on the week. In this case, Jesus and his disciples are going to take a moment just for themselves to take a break, to refresh, and they'll regroup because after this, now when he leaves Caesarea Philippi, he's going to be headed somewhere else. This map shows Caesarea Philippi is the yellow arrow at the very top of the map, the furthest north he goes within within Israel. And then he's going to begin another journey to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. This is the beginning of his journey to Jerusalem, the next Passover season. He knows that for him, this will be his last journey. This will be his last Passover season. And so he is preparing himself for the major project to come, for what mission is going to be waiting for him. And he's going to try, not like he's, well, he's going to begin to um, inform the disciples, hey, here's what to expect as we move forward. And so this is a very significant scene in his ministry and in his life. And so we'll give attention to this. You see a a very, very ugly, simple outline in your handout, in your worship guide. We're just going to have two key ideas as he has a conversation with these disciples. And after the two key ideas, we'll have some key challenges. And normally when Pastor Tim is preaching, he is surveying so much of the Gospels. It's like this bird's eye view and you're just flying through it all. We're going to jog through this story. It's not going to be quite word by word, but it'll be close. And what we'll do is, again, see these two big ideas and then two big challenges. And these ideas are important not only for his disciples, but they're also important for us because we need to have a clear understanding of these ideas. Because if we are his people, his disciples, they have the same expectations for us as he does for them. So two key ideas that he raises, we'll start looking in chapter 16. And we're going to go now to verse 13. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples a question. What's the question? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And he's talking about himself, me, the Son of Man. He uses that that label to describe himself most often. And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them a different question now. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answers more accurately, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus responds to that, Blessed are you, Simon, bar Jonah, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so here in this, this first idea, we'll just mention this, the identity of Christ. The key idea here is the identity of Christ. Who is this Jesus? And maybe he asks the questions and the disciples are answering on behalf of all the people and all the crowds that they've met. And all the crowds are used to coming to him, right? Why not come to him? Free food and really cool healings and interesting parables, which I kind of understand, kind of don't. But I mean, everybody else is going and it's such a, a, man, the vibes in that scene are unbelievable. Why not hang out close to Jesus as possible? And we see that's the case. I'm looking back to chapter 15, verses 30 and 31. Large crowds are coming to him, bringing lame and crippled and blind and mute, and everyone else come to his feet, and he healed them. 
And so verse 31 of chapter 15, the crowd marvels as they saw this. The mute speaking, the crippled are restored, the lame are walking, the blind people are seeing, and they glorify the God of Israel. Yes, what an amazing work of God. Let's follow this Jesus. Why? Well, because for some of them, they see him and they say, oh, he's like John the Baptist. Now, remember, John the Baptist has already died. He's been beheaded. But in his time, he was a very popular preacher, a lot of influence among the people. Maybe he came back from the dead. Maybe his head was put back on, and now he is here preaching again. What an amazing pre- He reminds me of John the Baptist. Others say maybe he's like Elijah, which is significant. Elijah is the best and kind of the representative of all the Old Testament prophets. He goes up to heaven in a chariot, didn't ever, ever die, so maybe that's why this is him. And when Elijah comes, we're told in, in the Old Testament prophecies, the very last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, when Elijah comes, this is the beginning of the end. Maybe Jesus is ushering in this last time. Maybe he's Elijah. They don't know, but Jesus already has clarified. John the Baptist is that Elijah, setting the stage for the Lord to come, in this case, Christ. Other people say maybe it's Jeremiah, one of the prophets. For a variety of reasons, they they think he's a prophet of some. And maybe some of them would say he's the Messiah, but it's important to recognize their perception of the Messiah may not be what Jesus is intending to do. And so he updates the question. We'll talk more about the Messiah here when we look at Peter's answer. But first, Jesus asks them, okay, what do you think? You've been with me longer than anybody else. What would you say? And Peter, speaking up, of course, (laughs) speaking for the disciples, he has a really pretty tremendous answer. And before we give Peter too much credit, Jesus knows that, and he he recognizes that Peter's answer actually came from God the Father, helped him come to this conclusion. But Peter has this idea. No, I don't think you're just the prophets. You are the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And that's worth pausing on for a moment. Peter recognizes that this Jesus, this man, this human that he's been following, who grew up in Nazareth, is actually the Christ Now, that's an English word. The Greek word is Christos, the anointed one that matches the Hebrew word Mashiach, the anointed one, the Messiah. So when we see the Christ, the Jewish people would think, you're the Messiah. And so it's important for us to recognize when the Jewish people think Messiah, what are they thinking of? Let's get feedback. When they thought of the Messiah, what often would the Jewish people think of? Okay, the Romans. We need deliverance, right? Yeah, he comes from David, definitely. He's a king of some kind. And so they're thinking, and you have to put yourself in their sandals here. They're living in the promised land of Israel, but they're not independent, right? The Romans are in charge still. These foreign occupiers who are pagans, we have to pay taxes to them. And they they resent that extra level of authority that they don't believe they should have. They want their king. They want their David to come back. They want another Joshua to kick everybody out and claim the land for themselves. So often they're thinking, let's have this Messiah come be our new king. In fact, earlier, they would try to make Jesus the king. Pastor Tim reminded us of that recently in the past few weeks. He knows it's not the time for him to be the king yet, but that's their perception So Peter's going to say, you are the Christ. He goes on, actually, not just the Christ, the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And not just a prophet. 
a human being who received a revelation or a message from God. You are the son of the living God, descended from God, divine himself. We know the implications of this are tremendous. This man in front of me is actually the son of God. Divine. It's odd for us, for someone just to walk in and claim, hey guys, guess what? I am God. You know, we would say, no, you're not. <laughs> and so for Jewish ears, that may be what their first impression was. But then they, as they watched as Jesus did miracles, as he forgave sin, as he accepted worship, as he controlled nature, like no prophet ever had, then clearly they realized this is a different one. This is the son of the living God. God become human. And he must become human because the Messiah has such a tremendous role to fill, such big shoes to fill, that only God become human can fulfill all the purposes of the Messiah. And so Peter's answer is a very powerful one. And Jesus recognizes that you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because this is no human answer. Your source is divine. My Father in heaven has revealed this to you. That's astounding. And so we're going to come to this big idea, this identity of Christ. Who is this Jesus we've been singing about? He's not just a moral teacher. He is not just a prophet. He is the promised one, the one who will right all wrongs, the one who will complete the, the cliffhanger story of the Old Testament, the one who will deliver his people and yet we're going to be seeing the details of his mission in a moment. He has not come to save his people from their enemies. What does the Messiah come to do? He has come to save his people from their sins. The deep, dark core of what their problems come from. And so this answer is a powerful one. And because of that, now Jesus is going to focus not just on his identity, but on his mission. What is the mission of this Christ? What is his mission as the Messiah, building a new kingdom, apparently? Well, he says this beginning in verse 18. I also say to you, you are Peter, no longer Simon. And this is not the first time we see this, this new name for Peter. You are Peter, a rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades or hell will not overpower it. And he continues with Peter, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. You're going to be the first one to open the door so people can understand the message of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then we have an odd uh, instruction from Jesus. He warns his disciples not to tell anyone yet. It's kind of odd. Wouldn't you expect that to be the case? But not yet. And so Jesus is going to announce to Peter, you are Peter, you are rock. And upon this rock or this boulder, I will build my assembly, my group, my people. I will build my people on this foundation. Now is the foundation Peter? It's a word play and in one sense, yes, one sense, no, right? Peter was instrumental in the beginning of this Christian church, he's the one to preach at Pentecost. He's the first one to preach to the Gentiles in Cornelius' setting. 
in Acts chapter 10. And so Peter does play an important role at the beginning of the founding of the church, but the foundation of the church is not Peter, right? It's this identity of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. On this boulder, on this announcement, on this reality that I am the Christ, on this fact, I will build my church. And Peter himself recognizes this when he preaches in Acts chapter 4, verse 11. Later in 1 Peter chapter 2, the letter that he writes, he identifies Jesus as the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone that many people reject. We're told in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that, the, the, that there's this foundation of apostles and prophets, but Christ Jesus himself is the, the, the cornerstone, the centerpiece of this, this concrete foundation of this building that he is building. And so the Lord tells Peter, here's my mission as the Messiah, the coming king. I'm not just going to claim a country. I'm going to build a country with a whole new set of inhabitants and citizens. And the mission of this church, this assembly, will continue to grow so that even the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, we have different ideas when we think of that, right? The gates of Hades, maybe think that's like Satan, right? Hell, that's like Satan's headquarters. That's his domain. That's his, like, you know, his, his, his fortress. Mm, it's more like that's his prison cell. <laughs> that's where he's going to be destined to be punished forever. So the gates of Hades would not necessarily mean demonic forces. Gates think the access to, well, what is Hades? Or in the Hebrew, Sheol. That's the place where dead people go. The land of the dead. And so when Jesus is using this phrase, the gates of Hades, maybe he's referencing the, the power of death. Death itself will not overpower or overcome my church. I'll give one reference you may want to write down. Isaiah chapter 38, verse 10. This is in the Old Testament, the, the king Hezekiah and Isaiah chapter 38, verse 10. Hezekiah has just been told that he's going to die of sickness. But he begs God, please let me live longer. God answers his prayer. And so Hezekiah writes a poem prayer, thanking God for letting him stay alive. Isaiah chapter 38, verse 10 is the first verse in that prayer. Hezekiah says, I said in the middle of my life, I am to enter the gates of Sheol. I am to be deprived of the rest of my years. So you see there, Hezekiah is using that phrase, gates of Sheol, to mean I'm about to die, even I'm the prime of life. So Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. I'm going to build my nation, my people. And when I do that, death itself will not overpower it. Now that's fitting, right? Because he's preparing to die. He's going to predict that. I'm going to die in just a moment. But guys, don't worry. When I die, it doesn't mean that you know, it's game over. This is part of the plan. I must die in order to build my church. And even if you die, the church doesn't die with you. And we could... Um, recognize that because we're a long time removed from that initial conversation. 2022, two millennia later, the church continues to grow. God continues to build his church. None of us has been alive for 2,000 years. Someone died and then we heard the message and we're still here. And so Christ continues to build his church. Nothing will stop the advance of his mission. His mission is to grow his church, to expand his people. I make some promises to Peter, which are a little puzzling for us at first glance. He's going to give Peter keys to the kingdom of heaven. And then Peter has this 
interesting position. He can bind something on earth and then lose something. And that, you know, that reminds me of like what our Catholic friends like to say, Jesus, Peter is the first pope. He is the one who is the basis of the church. And so he's allowed to forgive sins, right? Didn't Jesus say this? And he's the one who can allow people into heaven, right? Well, eh, not quite, not quite. I'll point two things out. I mentioned the keys of the kingdom already. He's opening the door. He's the first one to preach the message of the kingdom of heaven. And also, he is speaking of the church and their role. If I go over to Matthew chapter 18, what, is God, what are God's people doing there? They're helping to confront someone who refuses to repent. And at the end of that process of confrontation, they may have to conclude, my friend, I don't know if you can call yourself a believer. You're not repenting after everybody confronts you. I have to approach you like you're an unbeliever now. And perhaps that's what the person really is. And that matches this idea in verse 19 because Jesus is saying, notice it's kind of picky, but whatever you bind on earth has already been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth has already been loosed in heaven. It's like heaven is the reality, and then Peter and the people on earth are recognizing what's already the reality in heaven. So we're not quite confident saying Peter's allowed to forgive sins, right? Only our Lord can forgive sins. He finishes in verse 20 now telling his disciples, now no one can know this yet. My identity as the Messiah and needs to stay secret still because I have a unique mission. My mission is to build this church on this foundation of who I am. But if, if people think that I'm the Messiah, they're going to think that. And, of course, people are already spreading the news like that, right? Hosanna, the son of David, come in. But they quickly realize he's not the Messiah they were expecting. He's a different kind of Messiah. And that's important for us to understand this idea. Um, they were looking for someone to deliver them politically, to heal their bodies, to give them free food. Who wouldn't want to sign up? Raise them from the dead. I'm in his army. <laughs> Give me free food and you keep me alive? Sure, I'll join your army to fight the, the evil pagan pig Romans. He has a different mission, though. He's come to save his people from their sin. And in order to do that, in order to save his people from their sin, he's going to tell them an updated mission. Here's more information about what I'm going to do. And this is what he continues now. We'll look in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples something new. And he's never told them this before. This is the first time he's informing them of this. He must do certain things. There are four things that he must do. He must go to Jerusalem. Oh, of course, that's where the Passover is. We're all going to Jerusalem. And he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. Wait, what? Suffer? That's not on my job description of the Messiah. And be killed. What? Killed? That doesn't, no. And be raised up on the third day. I don't know that Peter and his friends heard the last one because they were so like struck by the first few. You're going to Jerusalem to suffer and die? Wait, that, that doesn't match my understanding of the Messiah. Come on, I'm like in your cabinet. We're like walking in to take the city. Come on, that's our goal. And Jesus is clarifying for Peter and for the others and for us that his mission is not just to transform the world. That's too easy. His goal is to transform the human heart by redeeming us from our sins. That is a different mission. That is a deeper mission than just peace. And so what he's doing is even harder than they expected. And it's something that, well, Peter decides, he takes it on himself, 
to correct the Lord, which I do not suggest. <laughs> and so Peter's upset. Wait, no, wait, no, no. Right. Jesus, come here, come here, listen. You just told me I'm the rock, and what I say goes, right? Okay, good, because, <laughs> and I have this authority, the God the Father just gave me this answer, I think I've got a good idea. And so Peter begins to take him aside and rebuke him. God forbid it, Lord. Oh, no, may God have mercy. No way would that happen. Lord, listen, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's interests. And so Peter thinks, well, I spoke for God before. I'm sure I'm going to speak for God again. <clears throat> no, you can't do this, Lord. Maybe this reminds you of another time that Peter has, says, has said, no, Lord. Maybe you're thinking ahead to the book of Acts. God tells him, eat this unclean animal is kind of segueing into the, the Gentiles receiving the gospel message. Peter says the same thing. No, Lord, no. Do you hear the irony of that? My all-powerful master, no. Because I know better than you. And my plans are better than your plans. You must be mistaken, God. We laugh at Peter, but then we look in the mirror and we realize that often we can start saying the same things. This should never happen to you. You're the Messiah. You shouldn't have to die. We'll die for you. Well, actually, he's going to die for them. Then as they kind of turn aside in this individual conversation, it's like Jesus turns to Peter. All right, I'm looking at you in the eyes. Get behind me, Satan. He used to be speaking for the Father. All of a sudden now he's speaking for Satan. He's repeating Satan's own ideas. And Jesus has heard this before. When he was tempted in the wilderness, Satan says, Worship me. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. That's what the Messiah wants anyway, right? Just, just worship me. You can have the easy way to get your kingdom. I'll give you the quick pass. But Jesus challenges Peter, no, 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 you're a stumbling block to me. You're trying to make me sin. You're trying to appeal to me to get the kingdom without the cross, to get the crown without the cross. Peter, no, no, you're setting your mind on God's interests. Not, not on God's interests, but man's. Peter, you're thinking like a human again. Trust me. Trust us with this true mission that Jesus has. And so he's confronting Peter a little bit about this. And so the challenge that Peter had to realize is the example of Christ, what Christ is doing. He's preparing to die on behalf of his people, taking our sins, taking the wrath of God and all of our anger and rebellion absorbed into him so that now he can offer us eternal life and a changed heart to join his people, his family, as, his, and as a part of his growing church. And so Peter is realizing, okay, maybe I didn't have such a good idea after all. I just need to stay quiet and keep following. But Jesus doesn't finish yet. Because now he goes to the second idea, the summons. And he's going to make it a little more personal for Peter and the other disciples. He's going to challenge them now. Verses 24 through 27. Follow me. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, you all want to follow me, right? He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? What's more valuable than your soul? And then he warns, he predicts the end of this whole process. The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. So Jesus begins with this this appeal. We'll call it a summons. They've already followed Christ, but there are many, many more people in the crowd who have stopped following. And Pastor Tim made that point last week. They came for the bread, but Jesus demands more than just an appetite. He demands their loyalty, their allegiance to him. Later in chapter 19, we're going to meet a rich young ruler who has kept all the commands. He expects to inherit eternal life because he has been good. But he's not loving God with his whole heart. And, in this, and if that's the case, he definitely would not devote himself to Jesus as the Messiah of God's people. And so he rejects Christ. He had not yet been prepared to follow him. Jesus tells us that if we wish to come after him, we must do three things. We must deny ourselves. Give up what we want relinquish hold on the things that are important to us. Jesus calls us to realign our priorities, to sync with his. We must match Christ. What he says is important, we must say is important. In doing that, that's going to take a lot of giving up on our part. That's going to be really hard. It's going to feel like we're dying. It's going to feel like we're being crucified. To give up this, to give up what I want, to give up pursuing my comfort, my ease, my happiness, to do maybe something hard to to help advance Christ's kingdom, to give up the fun things, to do something boring like reading the Bible, it may be difficult. It may feel like I'm being crucified. Luke adds one word in his account of this. He says to do it daily. To take up a cross every day and then to follow him. But brothers and sisters, this is glorious because all we're doing is following him. He's already done it. He has shown us what it looks like. He has gone all the way to Jerusalem. He has suffered at the hands of those around him unjustly and he has even been killed. And he rose again. And so if I follow him in denying myself and taking up my cross, then I will also follow him with eternal life. In one sense, it's like you're at a swimming hole or you go to a swimming pool and there's always the the few people who don't like to get in because it's really cold and you put your one foot in and you're like, okay, okay, my, my foot's almost comfortable with this. Okay, now I'll try the next step, my shin. Oh, it's still so cold. And you have the other people who just do a cannonball, right? They run and jump, And they get, but then they kind of get over it. And they say this, jump on in, the water's great, right? I can see the Lord saying this. Listen, I've set the path for you. Follow me. Jump on into the life of (laughs) self-crucifixion. Because in this way, I will build my church. And even if you die, you will not be overcome. 
And he gives us some explanations, some rationale to this, and I appreciate this. When our Lord gives commands, he gives us reasons. He is so kind to us. He is a good Lord. He explains to us, if I actually try to save my life and preserve it, I'm actually going to forfeit it. If I am not going to say anything to the person because I'm, I don't want them to know I'm that kind of Christian, I just want to be nice, not challenging people or raising questions for their worldviews, then I'm actually going to forfeit whatever I'm trying to preserve. When I try to salvage something, I actually lose it. But if I lose my life for his sake, I'm actually going to find it. If I do the hard thing of saying no to sin, even though it feels so good and so normal and natural for me, but I'm going to follow Christ. I choose the way of self-death. I feel like I'm dying again saying no to that sinful temptation. But Jesus says, as I feel like I'm dying, I'm actually being given new life. I will find that life. And what will it profit us, even if we gain the whole world but forfeit our soul? What's more valuable than your soul? The part of us that lives forever and can enjoy that deep, infinite joy of God's presence. And then Jesus finishes with one last promise. Let's fast forward to the second coming. Let's fast forward to the time when the Messiah does come as a king. Let's fast forward to the time when he... The Son of Man is exalted at the glory at the right hand of the Father, and he appears with his angels, and now he is coming to execute judgment on all of his enemies on this earth. Now he will restore the justice that we've been waiting for and longing for. When he comes there, then he sets up court, and then he repays every person according to their deeds in a perfect way. This is quoting from several different Psalms, Psalm 28, Psalm 62, even Proverbs 24, verse 12. The person who rewards each person according to his work is God. And so when Jesus says, I, the Son of Man, will come back to render to each man according to his work, it's yet another time that he affirms, I am God. I will come back. If you suffer for me now, I will reward you much, much more later. And there's this joy and this eager anticipation that we can expect at the end. So if that's the case then, we want to consider the summons of Christ and this is, this is a challenging idea for his disciples and for us because the, the tide is going to turn. It's going to be hard to follow Jesus as we continue walking through these accounts in the Gospels. And in one sense, maybe in your life now, it's going to be harder and harder to follow him. It's fun to follow Jesus when he makes me feel good or when I, I get all these happy fuzzies and um, all my friends like me because I joined them in being a Christian. But what if it means I have to stand up to other people? What if it means I have to speak out against something that is wrong? What if it means I refuse to laugh at the jokes? I refuse to join in the gossip because I am different. I want to do unrighteousness in all my ways. I want to be one of God's people that Psalm 119 describes. If that's the case, then maybe I have to be ready to suffer. And when I do, I'm only following Christ. He's been waiting for me all along. Come on, jumping in the water. I'm going to hold your hand. What is it like for you? So I'll finish very simply. I actually have two questions. We'll get to this question on the screen in a moment. First question is this. When you think of the Christ, the Savior, what do you think of? What do you need to be saved from? If you think only this relationship, 
or my body's kind of broken, or, you know, my bank account could use some help. That's not, what he, that's not his business. That's not his primary focus. His first focus is to save his people from their sins. And we must realize, brothers and sisters, that we sin, we need deliverance from that. Now, everything else is a side effect of sin, and he will address those. Don't get me wrong. But in his wisdom, maybe he will use you and build your, his church through you in the middle of that hard time. Do you desperately want someone to save you from your sins? This is why he's here. Now. And if you say, yes, I need this Savior to save me from my sins, then in what ways is he calling you to follow him? I've given several examples right now. Maybe it is a relationship that it requires more patience and more love than you think you can give. Not that you trust the other person, but that you should be concerned for them. Maybe it is a responsibility that is so heavy and so draining, you can't do another day of this. You are exhausted and worn out and you wish you had a five-day weekend. You must turn to Christ. Let him save you. Let him sustain you. Maybe it is just your body is so broken, you're, just, you're so frustrated. Another day of this kind of pain and difficulty? And I don't think, I'm, I'm not going to expect any relief until I die. Are you willing to follow him and take up a cross for another day? He is right there. He will help you. Are you willing to accept unanswered questions and the fear and anxiety that can come alongside? Are you willing to confront a life habit that controls you and keeps you from living a fruitful, productive life? We must follow Christ. Let's bow our heads and we'll close our eyes. God has spoken to us and we must respond. You must respond. And when you do, you can expect the Savior to come right next to you, to hold your hand, to strengthen you, and to compel you forward for another day. This is not a moral lesson. This is not something where I just have to try hard. We won't know what we're doing is we're collapsing against the Savior. We're saying, I can't do this. Oh, Lord, I need your help. So let me urge you in a few moments, a few quiet now, if you want to talk to the Lord, perhaps confess sin. Perhaps just thank him for being there and for showing you what it looks like. But let's devote ourselves to our Lord again this time. Let's pray.